0: God, I ask that you would be gracious to me and that you would give me words that are true and right from your word. I pray that you would stir in our hearts, that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would be opening our eyes from these precious words that you have given us. And God, what God is like our God who has clearly revealed himself not only in the pages of holy, holy scripture but in the flesh and blood of Jesus, the God-man. And Lord, we praise you. We pour out our hearts in adoration that you do make us dwell in safety, that through the sacrifice of your Son, Christ, his death and his resurrection, that we've been forgiven of our sins and redeemed. And Lord, we give out cries of praise to you for your great love for us, that you would go to such lengths that You would sacrifice so much, that You would make Yourself so low to lift us up. And we worship You for these things. And Lord, we do pray that You would speak to our hearts and minister to us now through Your Word. And it's by the authority of Jesus, Your Son, that we can ask these things. Amen. Uh, We have been making our way through Luke, so I encourage you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 14. Can you believe it? We've actually made it to chapter 14. Finally. Hey, if you don't have a Bible too and you're a visitor with us, we would love to give you one. We have some Bibles on the back table that's got that little sign Welcome Center on it. You can take one right now. Let that be a gift to you from us. uh, Or you can pick one up after the service if you'd rather do that as well. Um, Let me mention one other thing real quick before I read from Luke 14. This last week, some of our students went to camp And I know many of you were praying for them. It was a great experience. Um, Jim, who leads our student ministry, came back from camp and promptly hopped hopped on an airplane to fly to the Philippines to do some ministry over there. Um, So he's not here to kind of give a report on camp, but in a couple of weeks, he's going to just send a a letter that uh, I'll read to the church regarding camp and some students will share as well. So you will get an update on that. All right, hopefully now you're in Luke chapter 14. Let me just read verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. If you were here with us last week, then you probably remember I pointed out sort of a strange change in behavior of the Pharisees at the end of chapter 13. Uh, Suddenly the Pharisees come to Jesus and and they they tell him, you know, Jesus, you got to get away from here because King Herod is out for you. He's, he, he wants to get his hands on you to kill you. And previously to that moment, the Pharisees had mistreated Jesus again and again and again. So on the surface, this appears to be an act of kindness. They warn him about the danger that he's in. But as I pointed out last week, really their goal is to just get him to a more vulnerable place where they can dispose of him themselves. Obviously, Jesus doesn't fall for it. And so we see another kind of odd tactic used here by the Pharisees. Again, it would seem that they've extended to him the olive branch of peace and friendship, right? Here Jesus has been given an invitation to come and eat with them at the home of a Pharisee, and gathered around him are Pharisees and lawyers, prominent men uh, who are religious leaders in the community. And so what an act of kindness this appears to be. They've extended the hand of fellowship to him. But everything is not exactly how it appears to be in reality. Notice two things. First of all, in verse 1, it says what? They were watching him carefully. This was not merely a friendly lunch. This was an examination of Jesus. Second, in verse 2, it tells us that there just happened to be at this party or this lunch a man in front of Jesus with dropsy, which is a pretty significant illness. I'll get to that more in a minute. So, look, if you're an auto mechanic and you have sort of a casual friend who invites you over for lunch one day, and when you get to their house, the garage door is open and the hood of the car is up, the toolbox is out on the floor, and there on the card table next to the car is a box of pizza sitting next to the WD-40, you may begin to think that this was some kind of setup. That in reality, the goal was not lunch, but rather your skill set to be used for the occasion. Were they really motivated by lunch, or did they have some other ulterior motives in mind? And I think that's essentially, essentially the situation that we have here, okay? This just happens to be the Sabbath when you're not supposed to do any work, when people are supposed to rest and focus on God instead of doing work and labor. It just happens that at this lunch for the Pharisees, there's a man present who's not a Pharisee. It just happens that this man who's not a Pharisee, who just happens to be at the lunch on Sabbath, is also terminally ill. So do we really think that the Pharisees were acting benevolently here when they extended the lunch invitation to Jesus? I would say without a doubt, what they were trying to do is lay a trap for Jesus, which is consistent with their behavior all through the Gospels, if you read them. So before I get to the sick man and his dropsy, I just want to make two things clear from verse 1, okay? First, I just want you to notice how gracious and how patient Jesus is. Man, what a guy he was, seriously. Willing to embrace his enemies just like he taught us to do. Right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, Jesus knows full well that he's going into a trap, and yet he goes. If this was me, after all of the negative interactions with the Pharisees, I would have been like, thanks, but no thanks. I've got better invitations, better things to do with my time than attend this dinner party. But Jesus goes. He shows kindness. He even honors his greatest human enemies by sitting at the table with them to share a meal. Second, I want you to see the text tells us that the Pharisees were watching him closely. And I want to remind you that if you wear the name Christian, then the world is watching you very closely to see whether your behavior lines up with what you proclaim. And I want you to understand that while the words that come out of your mouth are incredibly important, the verbal expression of your faith and what you believe is paramount. We need to proclaim Christ crucified and risen from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. But the proof of what you profess is manifest in how you live your life. And I've said this before, again and again and again, questionnaires, surveys show that the biggest critique that non-believers have of Christians is that they believe that Christians are hypocrites. They proclaim something that they don't follow through with. They don't practice what they preach. And so, I want you to understand that the world is watching you very closely to see how you live your life, to see whether the way that you live your life resembles the Lord that you proclaim is over your life. And so, may we always seek to have our behavior match the behavior of Christ. And if the world hates us, which I think Scripture teaches that at times it will, if the world hates us, then let the world hate us because we look like Jesus, not because we are hypocrites. Do you see? Now, to the man who just happens to be at this dinner party, and he's very, very sick, if my uh, research in this area is correct, then dropsy is the modern-day equivalent of edema, It's swelling and inflammation of tissue that's often present because of organ failure, significant organ failure. Serious heart and liver problems can produce edema, which is often an indicator that without some really significant medical treatment, you're not too long for this world because your essential organs are beginning to shut down. And so this man is dying. He's terminally ill with this sickness, And yet the cold-hearted Pharisees are happy to use him as a pawn in their plot to catch Jesus working on the Sabbath. We get a good look at the true state of the Pharisees here. I mean, if you hang around church long enough, you're going to hear preachers and church folk hate on the Pharisees. And I mean, this is kind of why, right? These people are willing to use a man on his deathbed to try and make a fool out of Jesus. It's pretty despicable behavior. And really what they have is a singular purpose in mind here. They want to prove that Jesus does not respect their laws. That he has no respect for what it is that they claim to believe. They want conclusive evidence that Jesus is a law breaker. But in order, I think, to really understand this situation, I think we have to understand the difference between, on one hand, the biblical law of God and the rules and regulations of man that get heaped on God's law. It would appear that Jesus breaks the law here. That's what the Pharisees are hoping he'll do. But actually, Jesus perfectly upheld the biblical law of God as God commanded it in every respect. Not once did he violate God's commands. But Jesus had No regard for the rules and regulations that man heaped onto God's law to pervert it for their purposes. So when Jesus asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Nobody in the room has the courage to even offer him an answer. You can hear the crickets chirping in the background over the meal, right? And the reason why nobody answers is because those present at this dinner party or lunch, whatever, they know that God would not oppose the saving of a life on the Sabbath. They know in their heart of hearts that God would not be in opposition to that. The problem is that in proclaiming this, in saving this man's life, in doing this deed, Jesus trumps their piddly little rules and regulations in a way that reveals just how stupid those extra-biblical rules actually are. And what I want you to understand is that something greater than the law has arrived in Jesus Christ. Something greater than the law has arrived in Christ. Let me try and illustrate what I'm getting at for you, okay? Let's say you're driving to work one day. You left your house with just enough time to get to your office, your place of work, right on time. You know that your employer, your boss, who pays your paycheck, is a stickler about time. They like you to enter the office right on time. And while you're driving to work, you notice on the side of the road a woman with a flat tire. And she's got her four little kids in the car with her. And she's stranded on the side of the road. And so you pull over, you get out of the car, you help her change the tire, and as a result, you're, you end up 30 minutes late to work. Have you done wrong or have you done right now that you're late to work? Maybe consider it from another angle. Jesus tells a story about a man who is traveling somewhere, and on the way he's attacked by thieves. They steal all of his stuff, they beat him, they leave him for dead in the gutter. And a Jewish priest, a a holy man of God, on his way to the temple to perform his holy duties before the Lord, sees this man in the gutter on his way to work. And the Jewish priest knows he knows if if I stop and help this man, because he is bloody, I will be unclean according to God's law. And if I am unclean, which the ritual of cleansing can take up to a week, then when I get to the temple to do my work, God's work. I actually won't be able to do it because I'll be unclean and unable to enter into the temple. Should the priest stop and help this man in need? Or would it be better in the eyes of God for him to keep his hands clean so that he can go and fulfill his ritualistic obligations in the temple? Is it lawful to work on the Sabbath if that work will lead to a life being saved? Does God demand obedience at the price of love and mercy? Is the heart of God focused solely on the rules and regulations that he's put in place? Or is he concerned for the people to whom he gave his perfect law? Now, understand, this is actually a very tricky question. It really is. And here's why. Because if we say, God is not concerned for his laws and he's only concerned about people, then we make God into this groovy, carefree hippie who has no concern for the holiness of the people who bear his name and ultimately no concern for his own holiness. But if we say God is only concerned about his laws, he's not concerned for the people that he gave them to, he just wants us to be obedient to them, then we risk making God into this cold-hearted, loveless tyrant is hardly worthy of our adoration and affection. You see the problem that we're in. How do we answer this question? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, of course, Jesus does, in fact, answer the question. He doesn't do it with a simple yes or no, but rather by a demonstration of his power, the power of God. He heals the man standing before him. And he not only takes away the symptom, the dropsy, the swelling, But presumably he heals even the underlying cause, the terminal illness that's produced these symptoms of swelling. And by doing so, Jesus makes it very clear, yes, it is indeed lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus has not broken or violated the law of God. And I might be so bold as to claim that the action of Jesus reveals that love and mercy is the spirit of the law. Love and mercy is the spirit of the law. I think I can make this claim and back it up with Matthew nine thirteen, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Or I can make the claim from Luke 6, 9, where Jesus asks a similar question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Or another place, Matthew 12, where Jesus actually approves of David eating the holy bread from the temple to fill the bellies of his men who are hungry. That is a fascinating passage of Scripture where Jesus actually condones the behavior of David who breaks the law outright. And in that passage, Jesus goes so far as to say that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let me try and clarify what I'm getting at then in three kind of summarizing points here, okay? First, I want you to understand that in the kingdom of God, man works for God. God does not work for man. We've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God over the last couple of weeks because I think this is a really central theme to the gospel of Luke. And here we see how the kingdom of man tries to reverse the kingdom of God. It reverses the order of authority. Where man attempts to rule on earth, man claims divine authority and actually enslaves God to his purposes, to do his bidding. Now, of course, you have to understand that's not actually how it works, right? That's just how man thinks that it works. So the Pharisees, they take the law of God from the Old Testament and they use it as a tool for their power to do what they want by stamping God's approval on it. They actually end up jettisoning jettisoning from the law the compassionate heart of God so they can elevate their own rigid moralism in its place and keep people under this oppressive thumb of religion and duty. You see what they do? They actually make God work for them in a very perverse way. The reason I bring this up is because this is not all that different from a a popular strain of Christianity that we find prevalent in America today. If you listen closely to how some people talk about their faith, you begin to hear this thread of thought where God is really little more than kind of a genie in a bottle for these people. His purpose is to serve mankind and propel us onward to be all that we can be in this life. That's what some people claim the message of Christianity is all about. And man, that is so deceptive. It, it's straight out of Genesis chapter 3, where Satan tempts Eve to climb higher than God and to put God in subjection under her. And so what I want you to know is that the proper place of man is below God. And in the kingdom of God, man joyfully works for God, not the other way around. And so, if I, if I stood up here and I boldly said to you, unequivocally, that your truest purpose in life is to serve Christ and the law of his new covenant, would that offend you if I said it's not about you? If I said that your rightful place as a creature made in the image of God is to be bowed low at the feet of Christ, your master, would that make you uncomfortable? Conversely, if I said that the whole purpose of your having been created was to bring God glory would that cause your heart to actually leap with excitement? Like, does that draw you in? Or would you be angry and disappointed because you were sort of under the impression that God was there for your glory and your personal advancement in life? In John chapter 9, there's a fascinating passage where a man is blind from birth and he's brought before Jesus and the people ask him, Jesus, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it his parents who sinned, or did he sin that he's being punished for this? And you know what Jesus says? I love this. He says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. How beautiful is that? We exist so that the works of God might be displayed in us, whether we ascend to the heights of human achievement or we descend to the depths of suffering and despair, where we live as Christians in the kingdom of God. Man works for God, and that is as it should be. Second, I want, I want to point out that there's a delicious little bit of irony in this passage, which I've, I've said before that I was an English literature major in college, and so I love irony. It, it always jumps out at me. And I think God must love irony as well because it's, it's all over Scripture. Here's a man with dropsy, a symptom of heart failure. And he's surrounded by people who have hearts that have clearly failed on the inside, yet they have perfectly righteous lives on the outside, so in other words, you've got a man who's physically terminally ill with a heart problem contrasted with the religious leaders who are spiritually terminally ill with a heart problem. And they watch Jesus physically heal this man and they end up being bitter about it. I mean, they're quiet, not because they're in awe, but because they're furious. And you know what the proper response to seeing Jesus act in this way should have been? They should have cried out to him, Jesus, heal my heart too. What you've given to this man, I need in my soul. I too am terminally ill. Will you spare me? Will you heal me? And it's the heart that Jesus has come to heal. And here's a wonderful opportunity to experience that healing. No strings attached. And they miss it. They would rather follow their own rigid rules of the Sabbath than be drawn close to God who can set them free. And man, when I look at my own life, I, I, I see how far from perfect I am. I mean, it's not that I'm a little ways away from perfect. Like, I am crooked deep down. That's how I am naturally. But when I see the broken state of my heart, my lack of righteousness... Man, that is when I am most powerfully end up experiencing the healing power of God to bring what was dead to life, what is terminally ill to be healed. And honestly, if, 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 if I'm honest with you, I hate that process actually because I would rather be righteous. Do you ever have that experience? Like, I would rather stand before the Lord and go, God, I have done a great job, haven't I? But what I need is not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I need a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, through the work that he has done, through his grace. The Pharisees, man, they were so faithful to keep the Sabbath. I mean, do some research sometime about all these little teeny rules and regulations they had. So faithful to keep the Sabbath. But tragically, that did not bring them closer to God. The closer we are to God, on the other hand, the more healing that God brings to our hearts, the more forgiveness that we experience, the more grace we receive, the more we see the face of Christ, the more we end up desiring what He desires. And so we're transformed into His likeness through His work on our hearts. Let me put it very simply, the obedience to God's law does not necessarily produce the heart of God but a heart after God will eventually produce obedience. Let me say that one more time. Obedience to God's law does not necessarily produce the heart of God, but a heart after God will eventually produce obedience. Keeping the Sabbath does not automatically grow your affection for Christ, but growing your affection for Christ increases your desire for the rest that he offers you. And that's my third and final summary where I kind of want to land in closing here. The reason why Jesus can heal this man on the Sabbath and not break the law of God is because in Jesus, something greater than the Sabbath is here. Remember, man was not made for the Sabbath. Man was not made simply for the purpose of strict adherence to the law. Man was made for God which is something different entirely. And God, in His grace, gave to His people this wonderful gift of the Sabbath. But again, in Christ, a greater gift had come, a greater rest had come. I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament and and just sort of re-explain to you the purpose of the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, we find one of the primary purposes of God's decree regarding the Sabbath was for man to be humbled, and remember, it is God who provides. It is God who sustains. I mean, Doug, what you were talking about with the birds this morning, it is God who provides the twigs for them to build their nests, the seed for them to feast on. And so God made this decree six days of the week, Go and toil in your fields, and by your sweat and the thorns, you will suffer and bring forth sustenance from the earth. But on one day, I want you to simply rest and remember that I, God alone, bring forth fruit from the vine. I was driving to my kid's school to drop off some paperwork this week, and I I drove by the cornfields, and I... I was blown away by what man has done to be able to grow crops. Like the last time I drove by there was only weeks ago and they were just these teeny little seeds. And yet I remembered, man does not grow corn. God alone causes the corn to grow, the cattle to reproduce, the rain to fall, the seasons to turn, the soil to bring nutrients. Man can work all day long as hard as he wants, but he can't bring forth wheat from the earth. He can't make rain fall from the sky. He is not the ultimate cause of the livestock being born. The purpose of the Sabbath was to remember God, to honor God. The purpose was for man to be humbled, to call to mind the fact that God is the source of man's life, therefore man can rest in the faithfulness of our God. Now God ordained a day for that to happen, the Sabbath, and that was a day holy unto the Lord. But in Christ Jesus, something greater than the Sabbath is here, a greater rest. And I think this is illustrated in our passage How much rest do you think this guy with dropsy got on an average Sabbath? I mean, this was a painful illness. Not only was it physically painful, but it probably brought with it the anxiety of death. I mean, he had to know that his health was declining, and that probably caused him anxiety. In addition, I imagine that his productivity level was significantly decreased, meaning that his labor didn't produce as much material possessions for him to provide for him maybe that had consequences for his wife and his children and his family as well so do we really think that on any given sabbath day this man was resting giving glory to god for his provision or was his heart torn with anxiety and fear and then he meets jesus and all of his sickness all of his anxiety it's just gone with a word and every day for the foreseeable future now, this, this guy has a whole new understanding of what it means that God provides and we can rest in his provision. See, in Jesus, something greater than the Sabbath is here. And so Christians, we don't celebrate a single day of remembrance unto the Lord. Like, you're here gathered with us for church on Sunday, but we don't do this one day of, a, of the week. It's not one day set aside to praise the Lord for His goodness and provision and faithfulness. Every day for us who believe is a day of remembrance unto the Lord, a day to honor God and give Him glory. There isn't one day where we worship God. We worship God every day. He has not merely provided for our earthly sustenance today. No, something greater than the Sabbath is here. God has provided for our eternal well-being in the death and resurrection of Christ. So, you need to understand, we don't worship the rigid law with its rules. We worship Christ who has set us free. Our God is who we worship. Our God who saw His precious sons and daughters in the bottom of that well, helpless and in danger, caught up in sin and destined for death, and God in compassion reached down immediately to pull us out because he is loving and he is merciful. And for us who believe, our life is a life of rest and worship unto God because in the kingdom of God where God provides, we work for God and for his glory and not the other way around. And so it's our joy, therefore, to be healthy of heart, forgiven of sin, called to serve the servant king who loves mercy, who acts justly, who has revealed himself in humility. And so in this truth, then, may every day for us who believe be a day of joyful rest and worship from the heart unto our God who saves. Let me pray for us. God, we are moved by Your compassion. That You did look down upon Your creation and see man disfigured by sin. And rather than abandon us, You took on flesh and descended down into that well to lift us out, to redeem us. God, we worship you how precious is that truth and so i pray lord that we would seek to be obedient to you out of hearts that have been transformed that you would grow our love for you and as you grow our love for you that our desire would be for the things that you desire lord we thank you for your compassion we thank you for your grace we thank you for your love for your enemies for your healing power and for the way that you take a broken heart and you give it life again. And Lord, I pray that we would live in this rest, in this worship, not just on Sunday, not just one day, not when things are well, but even when things are unwell. In every moment, in every hour, in every circumstance, would we rest in your faithfulness and turn our hearts in praise and worship to you for your faithfulness. Amen.